If you brought your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. If not, we have some hardback Bibles outside on that table. uh, You're welcome to grab one of those and use one of those while you're here. For that matter, if you don't own one, you're welcome to take it. We'd love to uh, give it to you and let you walk out with it. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, we're nearing the end of our series in... Uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, Lord willing, uh, this is our next to last sermon. Next week we will finish and then start a new series uh, on the five solas of the Reformation on the 29th. Uh, at least that's our plan. Uh, we'll see. You never know what God has in mind for us. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, it's our practice when we read God's Word to stand, and so let me ask that you do that now. Just two verses, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, uh, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the author, the one who inspired Paul to write these letters, the one who has preserved them uh, these nearly two uh, millennia. Father, we, we pray that you would teach us, that you would be with us, Holy Spirit, that we would hear and understand, and more importantly, be changed by your word. For Christ's honor and glory, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You will, I assume, know the name William Bennett. Uh, He was uh, Secretary of Education under uh, President Ronald Reagan, Uh, You may actually know him better as the author or the editor of the Book of Virtues. Um, It's a collection of stories and and, um, poems and various sundry things that that teach, that model uh, those kinds of virtues, traits, characteristics that you would want to see in people. The goal of of the book is to, to reinforce... Um, compassion and, and friendship and kindness and responsibility and honesty and courage and things like that in people. He, he wasn't, of course, the first to write such a book. You could back up uh, a little over 200 years and you've got George Washington's Rules of Civility. Uh, you could back up about 2,000 years from him and Uh, you find similar writings from Plato and Aristotle. It shouldn't surprise us then that somewhere in the Bible, and this quite honestly isn't the only place, and this certainly isn't an exhaustive list. It's, um, it's it's, It's an abbreviated list. It's a model list, but it's not exhaustive, and it's not the only one. But you would expect to find virtues that God would want to grow in us, virtues grounded in God Himself. 
somewhere in Scripture. If, if so many cultures through the years has, have had their own version of a book of virtues, you would expect one somewhere in the Bible. And that's exactly what Paul has essentially written in these two verses. It's his own version of the book of virtues, grounded in God's character, grounded in God Himself. A couple of observations about the list, and and some of them are going to be like the kind of obvious thing that you say, and everyone around you kind of looks at you blankly like, yeah, why did you even say that? Like, why even... Why even mention something so obvious? Uh, Because the world in which we live doesn't think this is obvious. You might, and I might, but for the most part, the world in which we live uh, may not agree with uh, these observations. Um, Because you're used to hearing the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some of you finished it for me. Well, our world says that there's no such thing as objective beauty. That, that whatever you think is beautiful is therefore beautiful, and who are you to tell me that my idea of beauty or your idea of, of beauty is right or wrong or different? That's only partially true. It doesn't mean we all think it means, but that we get to define what beauty really is. That everyone has their own way of defining what is lovely, for example. That it's totally subjective and there's no objective way to define it. Or, or even the idea that truth is relative. We see this especially with regard to religion. What Your religion is good for you, and my religion is fine for me. And yes, they're drastically different. And in fact, yes, they say each other is wrong, but they're really not. Either one is okay. Either one is fine. You, you can have yours, and you can have your truth, and that's fine for you. But don't go imposing yours on me And I won't impose mine on you because, as we all know, truth is relative. All religions lead to the same God. Your religion works for you, and so get over it. You know, you can mix those two, actually. You can mix truth and beauty if you're familiar with John Keats' poem, An Ode to a Grecian Urn. It ends with this line, beauty is truth. And truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. We know that not all truth is beautiful. The the medical report that says you have cancer is true. There's nothing beautiful about it. Beauty and truth are not interchangeable. Not all beauty is truth and not all truth is beautiful. So one thing we see in this passage right off the bat is that there is such a thing as truth, as honor, as justice, as purity, as loveliness, 
as that which is commendable, which is excellent, that which is worthy of praise. There are things that are objectively defined that way. There, are, there, are, there is such a thing as, as truth in the objective sense, in, the, in that there is something that is true. If, if Paul wants me to think about these things, then they have to exist somewhere. And you and I know that if Paul's writing them, he's not saying, you figure out what is your truth and you think about that. So there has to be there has to be truth. There has to be loveliness. There has to be honor. Which of course means that there is such a thing that's that which is not true. That which is not lovely. That which is not just. We, we call it false. Right? We call it untrue. We call it ugly, perhaps. We, whatever the term is. But if these exist, the, and if Paul's saying think about these things, then they must exist and their opposites must exist too. Our, our world doesn't think that way. It doesn't think like truth or false. It thinks more like a, a sliding scale than a this or that. And that's, that's the world in which we live. If there's purity, then there's impurity. If there's truth, then there's falsehood. If there's loveliness, then there's that which is not lovely. But what does Paul want us to think about? Look at the list. We won't, um, we won't take the time to define all of the words. We won't work through. Some of them are, are obvious. We'll make a few observations about some of them. It's interesting, really, because um, the words that Paul uses in this list, he doesn't use very often other places. And for that matter, they don't appear very often in the New Testament at all. The, the words themselves, the concepts are there. Similar words are used from time to time, but these particular words actually don't appear very often in the New Testament, but they appear a little more frequently in the Old. Paul is probably relying a little bit on Plato. Paul's probably relying a little bit on the Greek world in which, uh, to which he's writing. Remember, he's writing to a church in Philippi. It's in Macedonia. It's sort of that northern, um, northeastern section of Greece. It's named for Alexander the Great's father. So it's a, it's a Greek culture, uh, but yet a Roman uh, city, a city in the Roman Empire. And so it has all the, the, the trappings of Greek philosophy and, and uh, Greek culture, and yet the protection and safety of being a Roman colony. It's not a problem for us that Paul would use Plato. It's not a problem that he would resort to that because of something we call common grace. Even cultures in which Christ is not preeminent, even cultures which are not decidedly Christian cultures, will reflect from time to time Christian virtues, Christian values. Why? Because that's, that's God's common grace to use 
the language of Scripture, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. I've, I've used the illustration before. If you're a Christian, your garden is well-watered and ginormous. And if you're not a Christian, your garden doesn't get rained on and all your fruits and vegetables die. Well, no, that's not true. Because when God sends rain, He doesn't decide, well, that farmer's a Christian, so I'm going to rain on that field. And the farmer next to him is not, so I'm going to not rain on that. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We call that God's common grace. Paul uses language from the culture around him, perhaps relying some on Plato and Aristotle, for example, as he makes this list. But he sets it in a Christian context. He sets it against uh, the backdrop of God and His character rather than, well, these are good ideas. Rather than uh, set against man himself. Whatever is true. How do you know what truth is? Okay, If I'm going to think about Truth, where do I find that? Where do I find truth to set my thoughts and think about those things? Well, Jesus prayed this in John 17. You read John 17, there's a section of John 17 where Jesus prayed for you. And in John 17, 17, as he's praying for future Christians, he's praying for the believers in this room in Athens, Alabama, in 2017, one of the things he prays is that God would sanctify them, these future believers, by His truth. And he says, your word is truth. God's word is true. According to Jesus, God's word is the truth that sanctifies us, that, that sets us apart to be His and grows us in his grace. In other words, part of what Paul's saying is we should spend more time thinking about God's Word. I don't know how much time we spend on any given Saturday watching football, watching your team lose on Friday night publicly for all the world to see. Talk about it on Saturday. Compare that to how much time we spend thinking about God's Word. The Bible is God's own personal self-revelation. And in it is truth. It is true. And, and we should give Paul is urging us, in part, to think more about God's Word. To set His Word before our eyes. To set His Word in our minds that we could then think about it. We could ponder it and consider it. What God says is true. And we should feed on that truth. This may be unnecessary but just, just in case, not all truth is found in the Bible. 
a lot of people go, what did he just say? Not all truth is found in the Bible. Now, everything in the Bible is true, but not all truth is in the Bible. I'll, I'll give you an example. The Pythagorean theorem. The quadratic formula. The world of math. That's where my brain goes. Um, Newton's laws of motion. Those are not set out in Scripture anywhere. But they're true. They hold true because God has created an orderly world in which math works. In which science and laws of motion and thermodynamics work. And so we rely on those things. Why? Because... Because God is constant. Because God has created the world for those things to to hold together. So even when we think about the quadratic formula and we try to remember plus or minus the square root and there's a B squared and there's a 4AC and a 2A in there somewhere, I don't remember. It should drive us to think, my God made that world. We should think on truth. We should think about that which is true. Paul's not saying we should only think about the Bible. But certainly as we consider truth, that which is true, it should drive us to think about God. It should drive us to to praise and honor and glorify Him for the world that He has made. Whatever is true, whatever is just, You know people that have a heightened sense of injustice. You know people who have a heightened sense of, they they bristle when they sense injustice in the world or in their home or you're mistreating one child compared to another. The bristles sort of stand up on the back of their neck and they just get all worked up. They have this heightened sense of, of injustice. They recognize when people are not being treated fairly. Or as they deserve. It's particularly true in in perhaps the workplace or anytime you put superiors and inferiors together, employers and employees, uh, masters and servants. If you steal the language from Colossians 4 verse 1, Paul commands masters to treat their servants justly and fairly. They're not to be abused and mistreated, they're to be treated just with justice and and fairness and equity and in part because masters, employers have a master over them. They work for God Himself. You know, we sometimes sing Micah 6.8. We sometimes close with that, like after our benediction. He has shown you, O man, what is good and What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? We should think on that which is just, that which brings fairness and equity to people around us. Whatever is pure, there's a word that completely lost in our world today. You know, sometimes we, and the older I get, the more I do this, pine away for, you know, the good old days. Back when people didn't call good bad and bad good. Back when you had names for people who um, 
slept around a lot because that was so rare and inappropriate. And now if you don't, the world around you has names for you. The idea of purity, of chastity, of of purity in thought and conduct and interaction with other people is outdated and ancient and no longer in touch with the times. Paul's writing to a Greek city, a Roman colony with all its Greek background. They understood pagan culture. They were used to sexual immorality. And yet Paul says, think on that which is pure. That which is set apart for and by God's Word. That which is pure and chaste in thought and action. Whatever is lovely. In fact, that word actually isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's, it's actually used to describe Esther's face in the Old Testament. Uh, that she had a, a lovely face. It, It's pleasing. It draws love from us. In fact, I think that's part of what's going on in Genesis 1. You know that refrain that comes up over and over again in Genesis 1. At the end of each day, and God saw what He had made, and it was good. See, if I do art, (laughs) watch out, but if I do art, and the stick figure isn't You know, his head is three times too big for his body. If it looks remotely proportional, I can kind of say that's good for me. It's not as good as anyone else in my house, but it's good for me. I think sometimes we read Genesis 1 that way. That God saw what He'd made and was like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's good. That'll do... It'll suffice. It's good enough. Part of what he's saying is that it's lovely. That it's beautiful. And it wasn't very good until his image bearers were set in creation. And only then did it become very good. Paul wants us to to think about these virtues, these these virtues that are grounded in God's character and in God's Word. There's objective justice and purity and loveliness and truth, and they're given by God, and we're to think on these things. Notice, even though I've said it several times, notice what Paul wants us to do with this list. We have this this list of virtues, uh, six adjectives, two nouns. Uh, there obviously is more to the scope of what Paul has in mind than is actually written here. It's a, it's a representative list. It's not a, a complete list. But then he tells us what we're to do with these things at the end of verse 8 and then in verse 9. Notice first, he wants us to think about them. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, at the end of verse 8, think about these things. Even that's countercultural today. Our world doesn't want to think. 
It wants to feel. Our world doesn't want to doesn't want to consider. It wants to just respond emotionally to something. In fact, for that matter, you go to church. And even, even in the church, it's, it's all about what can I do to drum up some emotion? Who cares if I connect with the mind in any way, shape, or form? The world in which we live is, is all about emotion. You hurt my feelings, and you're not supposed to do that. Who cares if you have a legitimate argument? You can't tell me I'm wrong because that hurts me, and that's not fair. That, that's, that's our postmodern world. But Paul says, here's this list of virtues, and what I want you to do is consider them. Think about them. Meditate on them. Ah, uh, that word. Wait, meditate. You immediately think, i got to sit cross-legged. I can't even do that anymore. Sit cross-legged on the floor and hold my hands in this weird thing and chant om and empty my brain. of everything. That's not at all what Paul wants. Paul wants these things running around in our minds. He wants that which is true, that which is honorable, just, pure, lovely, Commendable. He wants these things running around in our minds. That's the picture of Psalm 1, isn't it? We read of the man who meditates on the law of God day and night, who, like a cow chewing the cud, chews on God's truth day and night. Paul wants us to think, on these things. He, he lists these virtues and says, now let these consume your thoughts. Let these run around in your minds. Focus your, your minds and thoughts on these. Our minds matter. Paul's saying, look, first of all, your, your mind matters. That, that walking with Christ isn't merely an emotional response or a series of an infinite number of emotional responses. It actually involves your heart and your mind. In fact, that was part of why we read from Proverbs earlier. Guard your heart. Guard with that which is inside of you. Guard your thought process. Why? Because what you think and what's inside of you is what makes you unclean because that comes out. It comes out in your language. It comes out in your actions. It comes out in the, the way you react and you're under stress and somebody said something, they set you off and the way you react, it comes out. Paul says, let these things consume your thoughts. Fill your heart and mind with that which is true and honorable and just and lovely and the rest. In fact, he uses the word, the word think here is the word logizomai, which logic, logarithm. It comes from that Greek word. But Paul doesn't end there. Christian discipleship isn't about what you know. Christian discipleship, discipleship isn't about what you understand. It isn't about what you have in your mind and only what you have in your mind because notice he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say think about these things 
And that's what Christian discipleship looks like. Instead, he says, Christian discipleship starts from the inside and works its way out. Because notice what he does in verse 8. In verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, now do them. Think about these virtues and now go out and practice these virtues. The Christian life isn't a mindless, thoughtless, emotion-only life. It involves the mind and the, the way we think, but then it, it, they play out into our lives. We're to put into practice these things. You know, we can see the psalmist, David, asked that God would search his heart, test his thoughts, check his mind for what's going on in there, see if there's any anxious way in me. We have a book of Proverbs. It's all about living wisely. How do I live the Christian life in the world in which I find myself? How do I put these Christian truths into practice in this world? How do I take what I know and apply it to my life in the world around us? Romans 12, Paul urges us not to think the patterns of the world but to be transformed by a renewed mind that thinks God's thoughts after Him. But having thought on these things, now therefore, practice these things. Live these virtues out in your life. Model for others what it means to think Christianly. Model for others what it means to, to live according to God's Word. If you and I are going to grow in grace, it starts with what we fill our minds with. I'm pretty good at filling my mind with Clemson football. This weekend, I've unfilled my mind. I've, I've dumped it all out. I took it all out. Left it somewhere else. I filled it with other stuff. Paul says, if, if you're, if you're going to grow in grace, if you're going to grow in the, the knowledge of God, if you're going to grow in Christian discipleship, it begins with what you fill your mind with, what you think about, the kinds of things you, you ponder and consider. As you go through your week, think about for a second, I've really consumed a lot of time with this thing. Now, obviously, you have work and you have things that, that demand your time and thought, and that's, that's all good. But as we consider, what fills our minds? Is it what God calls lovely, or is it the loveliness that's in the eye of this particular beholder? Is it what God calls true, or is it what I want to be true? Is it what God calls honorable and just? Or rather than treating others with justice, am I more consumed with thinking about, am I being treated right? Am I being treated fair? Am I, I being treated justly? You know, you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, 
you've heard people described, it's, we use this as a, as a negative, that so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Paul says in this passage, we don't need people that think like the world around us. That's everywhere. We need more and more believers thinking God's thoughts after Him. Thinking heavenly-like about the world in which we live. And as we put these virtues into practice, as we, as we live these things, as we practice these things as He commands us here, who knows? Maybe unbelievers around you will see your good works and they will then glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus says? Our good works are seen by unbelievers and they say, what is that? Why did He do that? And it drives them to seek Christ, to honor and glorify Christ. May God grant us the grace to think His thoughts and walk in His ways. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we're so distracted by what our eyes see in the world around us. We're distracted by what we feel, by what we want, by our own sinful desires. We pray that You would fill us. Grant us the grace, the the work of Your Holy Spirit to fill us with Your thoughts, to fill us with that which is true and lovely and commendable and honorable and just, and that we would think Your thoughts after You and that You would then, by those thoughts, by that truth, sanctify us. Conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray that we would long to gather others with us. Not for our honor and glory, but that the name of Christ might be exalted. For it's in His name that we ask. Amen.